You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geyser. This month, we're reading The Loving Push by Temple Grandin and Deborah Moore. Let's get into it. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Laura. Welcome back, everyone, to the SLP Book Club. This episode, we are covering The Loving Push, Chapter 5. This is called What to Do When Your Kid Doesn't Seem to Care or Is Chronically Anxious. So this chapter is really about how anxiety and depression can commonly coexist with autism and Asperger's. These kids have a lot of sensory overwhelm that can cause anxiety and panic responses. And the authors just stress that mood problems really need to be tackled because they can stop kids from moving forward in life. Sometimes it can be really hard to recognize that a kid is struggling with a lot of anxiety. They're not necessarily going to tell you that they're having an issue. So the parents really need to be on top of it, asking a lot of questions and figuring out if this is something that their child is dealing with. Some studies have shown that about 40% of kids with autism will have at least one significant episode of depression. These episodes can be pretty dark and difficult to deal with because the brighter a child is, and we know a lot of kids with high-functioning autism are really super bright, the more they're going to recognize their challenges and their differences in high school, and this could lead to them being really critical and can possibly worsen depression. Some other contributing factors, just the hormonal changes that happen at puberty and the challenges that come just from being a middle school or high school student. I mean, these times are challenging for all kids, but especially for kids on the spectrum. Neurotypical teens have really changed their interests, bullying increases, the academic demands shift. So some kids on the spectrum will retreat, some will act out be different with everyone. But Temple Grandin gives a story about her own anxiety and depression that she started to struggle with at age 10. She started having stomach aches, headaches, panic attacks, and this really went on for about 20 years. She really risked becoming housebound because she was so scared of these panic attacks that would take over. And in her 30s, she was about to have a surgery. Her panic attacks really started increasing and worsening. And she read about taking antidepressants and finally got up the courage to ask her doctor. I'm sure that at this time, I think it was the 80, early 80s, and um, maybe there was a lot of stigma or she was just nervous about it. But she asked her doctor. She got put on an antidepressant. And almost immediately, her symptoms improved significantly. So at the time this book was written, Temple said she's still on a low dose of an antidepressant, and she really credits it with saving her life. So that was just a little aside to give a little insight to let you know that Temple Grandin struggled with this. And what we hope for these kids that do struggle with anxiety and depression is that they're able to come out of it, find treatments that work. Because imagine if Temple Grandin, who has contributed so much, she's been such an incredible advocate for people with autism. And if she had become housebound because of this anxiety, it would have been just awful. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say also that, you know, depression affects motivation so much. So for all the kids on our caseloads where we're really wanting them to make progress and we want them to be on board with therapy, addressing this would probably help so much across the board too. Yeah. So around high school time, being bullied becomes a really big issue with these kids. It seems to me that recently, in recent years, bullying has become 
a pretty hot topic. There's a lot more awareness around it. And children are being taught really young to stand up for each other, stand up when they see someone being bullied. But I just wonder if there's really anything that will stop kids on the spectrum from being bullied in school. You know, it seems like it's such a big issue. So one researcher found that 77% of parents he polled said that their kids on the spectrum were bullied in the last month, which is just horrifying. That's such a high number. In terms of anxiety, they advise parents to get into the classroom if anxiety is kicking in at school and it's affecting their school performance. You really need to get into the classroom and see if there are things that may be causing it and getting in the way of your child learning. And I think speech therapists could also help with this with identifying things that are causing a lot of sensory overload in the classroom and helping come up with strategies to address them. And they emphasize that the child should be present in their IEP meetings or just meetings about the types of accommodations they need in the classroom, because while the parents are still there to help them, they need to start advocating for themselves so they get practice doing that for when parents won't be around to help them when they're a young adult. Oh, so this reminded me of a time in grad school. I don't know if you remember this, Adrian, but mm. I was on an assessment team and we assessed an adult man who was having a lot of difficulty at work. He was having a lot of trouble focusing in meetings when they would turn off the lights and then have a really bright PowerPoint presentation on the screen because he would just become totally overwhelmed. His senses, he couldn't focus he couldn't hear what was being discussed in the meeting because his senses were just so overloaded. And when he would be at his desk, if somebody was moving their leg or tapping a pencil nearby, he absolutely couldn't get any work done. And his son had just been diagnosed with moderate to severe autism. And I think as the dad was learning about his son's challenges, he started to recognize that he had some of those same issues and maybe was more on the, you know, he was mm. he was an engineer, which I think we've <laughs> found that mm. a lot of people in fields yeah. <laughs> like engineering might have high functioning autism. So yeah, he just started to see that he had these challenges. You know, it wasn't necessarily the right place for him to come to come to a grad school clinic. We were just speech therapy grad students. We couldn't really diagnose him if he had autism. We were trying to see if maybe he had a sensory processing disorder. But for people who don't have a diagnosis but are facing mm. these challenges in their workplace that are affecting their work, or for teenagers that are who don't have a diagnosis and are having these challenges in the classroom, I could see how valuable it would be to get a diagnosis and start to advocate for yourself when you need some accommodations. So that you can tell people, these are the issues I'm having that are affecting my work and I need this, 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 and this. Yeah, absolutely. I loved the story of the glasses that Cosette's mom made for her when she was young, where oh, she yeah. <laughs> blacked out all but like a little tiny piece. And I just, I know sometimes we have those kids when they're really young, who, when you have an activity that they really love, they get really, they start to use their hands to yeah. cover parts of their visual field because I, you know, it can be so overwhelming. So mm. for Cosette's mom to understand this and know that her, her daughter needed most of her visual field blacked out so she could just focus her attention on one little part was so amazing. And then, you know, they go through some other accommodations that kids might need, but autism classes now, I know at the schools I worked with, typically did have noise canceling headphones for the kids that needed them. But yeah, it's just, it's up to the parents and then you need to pass it on to the kids to advocate for themselves when they need things like this. I have seen in classrooms, you know, there are different kinds of accommodations. So of course, if they need it, they might get like an FM system or something where 
they need they have to wear special headphones to maybe hear the teacher better. But mostly I found that it kind of depends on the teacher and how willing they are to have the student do something different. When I was at the middle school, when I was at the middle school, some of the teachers were just really strict and almost to the point where it was like, you're not legally accommodating these kids in the way they need to be, you know, because they're like, well, nobody in my class is allowed to wear headphones. Why should this kid be allowed to wear headphones? But maybe he was, you know, overstimulated all the time and maybe it helped him or so. I mean, I don't know. I saw kids really needing that and I saw some teachers being so great and some teachers just struggling with it. I think there's also a bullying factor to look at always. So anytime you bring in an accommodation like that, special glasses, special headphones, even the FM systems, if they need them, it can just make them stand out so much more. So I think once again, I know I pretty much say this in every episode, but it's like a balance, you know, what's working best for the child and then what's not causing them too many issues because the bullying can really be bad. Yeah, I didn't even consider that because at the elementary school level, I think when you give an accommodation like that, the only issue is that the other kids want it. <laughs> like they're like, why does he get that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, they become sure, jealous sure. that they have something extra that they don't have. They go into a section talking about OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder occurring with autism. And this is interesting because I think I've mentioned in a past episode that I had pretty bad OCD as a kid. And I always thought when I was working with kids with severe autism, the young ones, nonverbal kids who really, you know, like lined things up and needed things to be done in the same way. I always thought that the reason I was effective with them was because I understood their compulsion to have things done. You know, when you have a compulsion to do something a certain way, the level of discomfort you feel when it's not done the way that you want it can be totally overwhelming if you have OCD. I now know that it surfaces. Mm. For me, it surfaced when I felt like I didn't have control. It's like a way to control your environment to do these compulsions. You say like, okay, if I do it this way, then everything will be okay. (laughs) And so that's interesting to think about kids with autism who like to have control, like to have routines and all the overlap between OCD and autism. I can just see that it would be really hard to differentiate what's part of your autism, what's part of your OCD. But then it's also important to differentially diagnose because the treatment for OCD in someone with autism would be different than the treatment for OCD in someone who does not have autism. So something like exposure therapy would possibly make things worse for a kid with autism where for me it would make my OCD better and I'm happy to report my OCD has totally calmed down it only kicks in before big events that I'm nervous for (laughs) wow well I'm glad you got a hold on it because it's disruptive yeah it took until maybe my 20s to to figure it out Hmm. this chapter is kind of just gonna jump from topic to topic. I had a hard time. They just go over so many different things that could contribute to anxiety and depression. So they talk about eliminating any routines that are teaching the child learned helplessness. So example of putting away clothes, you need to go through the steps when they're not in a bad mood and give them praise and rewards for when they master the task. And we can do this in the speech room or in the classroom. I always really appreciate when the classroom teachers have jobs for the kids 
to do that gives them a sense of responsibility and accomplishment. And I think that you could do the same thing in the speech room if you had, I don't know, like one person hand things out or help with cleaning. I don't know. You can always give kids things to do that you can give them a lot of praise for and make sure that they're doing them on their own and not just having you do it for them, you know, just because it's faster. Those were some of the things that can contribute more to anxiety, but then they're going to go into depression and autism. So they say that the parents need to pay attention because if a child is very focused on negative thoughts, you should suspect depression. So look at their drawings, their writing. What are they focused on? Are they focused on death or negative thoughts? And then ask them about them. Ask them about the things they draw, the things they write, and the the things they think about. And praise your child for honesty. And then parents of kids on the spectrum also need to pay attention to their own mental health because depression and anxiety are often high in families of kids with autism. So it's like the thing on the airplane where you grab your oxygen mask first before you help anyone else. It's important to treat depression or anxiety in the parents because it could hamper the child's successful transition to adulthood. If a child does have depression, they recommend two really crucial things, interactions with others and the good feeling that comes from mastering tasks. So that goes back to giving them tasks to do that they can really master, that you can praise them for, and then also that push to get them out and socializing with other people. They go through some lifestyle things that can be affecting mood that you can address as a parent, but also I think these are really good for speech therapists and teachers to know about because we should be asking parents about behaviors at home that might be impacting kids at school. So sleep problems, number one, are common in children and teens with autism and create many secondary problems like social skills deficits, more stereotyped behaviors, greater sensory challenges, higher rates of oppositional behavior and aggression, greater rates of ADHD and other psychiatric diagnoses. And in one study, sleep problems were the number one predictor of challenging behaviors in autism. So I know that in my experience, even really young students with autism often had sleep problems as reported by the parents. So we would try to start speech, you know, when the pandemic hit over Zoom and the child was just not having it. And the mom would say, oh, he didn't sleep at all last night or he didn't go to sleep until 5 a.m. this morning. I was wondering if they're just inherently an issue with kids on the autism spectrum or whether they've increased in recent years with the increase in use of technology like tablets and computers that kids are on until so late. I mean, what are your thoughts, Adrian? I'm not exactly Sure, but I I know we're going to talk about some video games and technology use in the next chapter, but I do have to say I would frequently have students report crazy bedtimes Yeah, <laughs> to the point where I would be like, what? <laughs> and I remember I had a slippa who would always lecture the kids on like the importance of sleep. <laughs> it is. It's so important. <laughs> it is. And you can really tell like when kids are off, when... They are more likely to have a meltdown or they're less flexible. It's probably because they're tired. Kids need a lot of sleep. Yeah. It can be a little difficult to talk to parents about because it's really more of a parenting issue. There's only so much we can do, but SLPs are educators, right? So we can educate the parents as best as we can. So we have a little handout for you to download on our Patreon that just goes over the impact that sleep has on kids on the spectrum, on their behavior and their motivation in school, and then some tips for how to practice good sleep hygiene. So this is a great resource for you to give to parents, especially of those kids who are coming to school really, really tired and 
you just know that they need to be getting more sleep in order to participate. So yeah, in terms of ideas for improving sleep hygiene, turn off all devices an hour or two before bed because those really decrease melatonin production. Avoid daytime napping. Make sure that during the day, kids are getting outside and getting exposed to light. This has been really huge for me learning in recent years how important it is to get direct sunlight on your eyes Mm. in the morning within a couple hours of waking up because that reset that internal clock and that's going to make your melatonin kick in at the right time at night for you to go to bed. Mm. Don't eat close to bedtime, no drinks with caffeine, and encourage teens to do more living out in the living room so their room does not become a place of arousal. So this is a big problem for anyone who's having difficulty with sleep. If your bedroom is a place where you watch TV, play video games, play on the computer, go on social media, anything like that, if it's a place where you're doing anything other than sleeping and maybe getting dressed, then when you're in there, you're going to want to keep doing those things. You're not going to be ready for rest. You're going to be ready for action. So, you know, take the computer out of their room and put it in a common room so that they're not spending all their time in there in the bedroom doing things other than sleep. And then they do say to consider melatonin supplements if you've tried all of these strategies and nothing is working and they're still having a lot of trouble with sleep. You know, Laura, do you ever use melatonin? So um, (laughs) this might be more information than you need, but I have tried melatonin and then I realized (laughs) that I have high blood pressure and melatonin interacts strangely with blood pressure medications. So I'm not supposed to take melatonin. (laughs) Do you? Interesting. You know, I've tried it. It's like everybody swears by it and it's like, oh, it's natural. So I was like, okay, I try it. I'll try it. But I think the one that we got was a higher dosage, like higher milligram and I don't know. The next day I bent over to pick something up and it made my head feel so weird. Well, yeah, you just don't know. If you're doing the right things, your body should be creating enough melatonin for sleep. What I use is magnesium. I use that powder that you mix into a water at night. Mm. Natural Calm, I think it's called. And I love that. Life changer. Wow. Thanks for the plug. (laughs) Not sponsored by Natural Calm. (laughs) Okay. So next they talk about diet. And this is another, I mean, it's a tricky area trying to tell a parent Mm. what to feed their kids. But we know that kids on the spectrum have really restricted diets. They only like certain, maybe they only like certain colors of food, certain textures. And so you really have to work on improving it before they reach adulthood and before those habits are set in where they can't break them. You know, if your plan is for your kid to be living on their own, you'll have no control over what they're eating. Then you need to create healthy habits early and you can teach them the authors. I liked this approach where throughout the book, they've kind of said, kids on the spectrum have this really strong sense of right and wrong, strong sense of morals, and they don't like when people are being manipulative or wrong. And so if you teach a child about how manipulative the junk food industry is and how they're just trying to create these foods that get you addicted and are bad for you and are killing you, (laughs) they'll be outraged by it. So I don't know if this is effective. Let me know if anybody tries this with their kid. But I I like the approach to teach them that young. I'm worth a shot. 
Yeah, teach them how to read labels for nutritional information and teach them that when they go grocery shopping, they need to stick to the outer aisles where the fresh food is, not the packaged food from the Um, middle aisles. Good information for everyone, I think. Yeah, all this information on sleep and diets, like this is just basic (laughs) stuff we all need to know, I think. And then they say that kids on the spectrum can be in poor physical shape. Some are born with low muscle tone or maybe really uncoordinated, and so they don't have interest in physical activities and sports. As teenagers, they might spend a lot of time in front of a computer. And being sedentary leads to poor health and mood disorders. So one of our friends from this book, Martha, she was the 57-year-old woman, says she uses heavy lifting to calm her down. And I don't even think she's talking about weights. She's like, I'll move a piece of furniture when I need to feel calm. Lifting her table. I love that, that she recognizes that. And they say that when people exercise, they start making better decisions about other behaviors too. So they eat healthier, lose their temper less often, drink less caffeine and alcohol. And I know that this is true in my own life. You know, you change one thing and it has an impact on the rest of your habits. So once autistic kids get into a habit, they're great at maintaining it. If you get them moving in some way, if it's walking, if it's doing some other physical activity, get them started on a routine, make a chart and put notes in a calendar or something like that and have them track it until it just becomes a rule or a routine in their life. They don't have to like the activity. They just have to see the benefit and logic of it. So once again, just being really straightforward, listen, this is going to improve all these other areas of your life. It's really important for your health. And Temple gives the example. She does a hundred sit-ups before bed every night. She doesn't like doing them, but she just knows she (laughs) needs to and that it's really good for her. And they just make a note to rule out any inflammation or pain. So lots of autistic kids have gut issues and you really have to ask them about it. They don't necessarily know that it's something they need to tell you. And relief of issues like that could lead to immediate improvement in mood if they are constantly having these pains or inflammation. So now we're going to move on to counseling and therapy for mood disorders. They recommend to find a therapist who's familiar with autism. Traditional talk therapy won't work for most. So one of the types of therapy they do recommend is cognitive behavioral therapy. This has been found most effective for people with autism and a mood disorder. CBT examines the relationships between a person's thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, and then shows them how their feelings are often linked to distorted negative thoughts or automatic self-talk. It teaches individuals that thoughts are not facts. The therapist will actively work with clients to develop concrete behavior changes. It's a really structured approach, and it often uses mindfulness, so it helps clients just pay close attention to what they're experiencing in a given moment. The goal is to quickly recognize and name experiences before stress or negative states take hold. This is similar to the whole brain child name it to tame it strategy, or also the sift, where you sift through your sensations, Mm. images, feelings, and thoughts. Just having that awareness of what's going on in your head, knowing that the things you're saying to yourself aren't necessarily true, you know, kind of challenging what's in your head. CBT is effective in reducing depression and anxiety Mm -hmm. and increasing positive emotions in young adults with autism. So parents can use CBT even if they don't have access to a therapist. You can just be an active listener Ask questions. You can understand more about your child's experience. Don't tell the child that everything will be okay or just to stop worrying or be positive. They need concrete guidelines and steps. So yeah, instead of just telling them stop thinking about something, give them steps to 
tackle the problem, define the problem, make it specific. Like I'm unhappy that I don't have a job. And then you brainstorm ideas for getting close to your goal. You break it down, figure out small steps that can be taken and then track progress toward the goal in writing, figure out obstacles together because sometimes even thoughts and beliefs could be obstacles. And if your child is having any automatic thoughts, you can analyze them and challenge them by asking the child what proof they have of the truth of these thoughts. And this is also something we learned in Whole Brain Child. It's that idea where a kid says, I'm so stupid because they can't do their homework. And then you teach them to say, I'm not stupid. I'm just, you know, I'm actually really smart. I'm good at this, 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 and this. I'm just having a really hard time with this concept on this homework. It's not an indication of who I am. I think the takeaway here is these are moments where your child will, or the child child will really need your support and that gentle loving push, right? So they're not going to really have the motivation to probably do this on their own. So you might need to hold their hand, but hopefully the end result will be what everybody wants. And so it will be worth it. Yeah, I think this strategy is really useful for speech therapists. I know even as young as elementary school, I had kids who were already getting into those really negative thought patterns and getting really down on themselves. And I think to be able to talk about the thought that they have about themselves and challenge it by saying, what proof do you have? (laughs) Tell me an example. And then you're able to provide them with counter evidence. Well, here's why I don't think that you don't have any friends, you know, because I saw you playing with so, so, you know, being able to provide them with evidence that the opposite is true. Yeah. If the child has a lot of anxiety and needs more confidence, try relaxation techniques like belly breathing or progressive relaxation. They do go into service animals for kids with autism that can sense when they're stressed or anxious and then give them a signal that maybe they need to use calming techniques. Sarah, one of our friends from the book, says that she has a service animal that helps her realize when she has anxiety, and then she uses breathing techniques that she's learned in therapy. She also goes into some other strategies she's used to relieve her anxiety, like noise-canceling headphones when she's in public, or using tactile strategies like wearing tight jeans. She, like Temple, with her squeeze squeeze machine. Is that what's called? She likes having a lot of controlled pressure on her body. So I know a young adult with autism who has a very friendly dog and he gets out twice a day for long, long walks with this dog. And I don't know if the dog is specifically a service animal, but the socialization piece of having a dog that you walk that's friendly, that gets along with the other dogs in the neighborhood, you know, he is one of the stars of the neighborhood, talks to everybody. The dog is great. And I can just see that having the responsibility of taking care of a pet, the exercise from going on walks, and then that socializing, meeting new people every day with your dog. I mean, unless you're, you have a kid who's afraid of dogs or you're just not in a position to have dogs, I just think that having an animal like that has so many benefits for someone who's on the spectrum. Yeah, for sure. They also go through some alternative therapies that might help like over-the-counter supplements, occupational therapy, music therapy, massage, essential oils. These are just things parents can check out, but I don't know how much research there is for all of them. They recommend for teens that they might want to get into group therapy specifically for teens and young adults with autism. They won't want to go initially 
But then they said once they do get going, they usually keep it up and grow to like it. And they recommend support groups for parents of kids with autism. And they give an example of a parent who said that when she first attended a support group with other parents of kids with autism, it was the best day she'd had in a while, which I think is really telling. Yeah, that was sweet. Yeah, finding that group of people that really know what your challenges are and and can talk it through is incredible. They mentioned two types of therapy that aren't usually effective for people on the spectrum. So as a speech therapist, if you hear that one of your students is using one of these techniques, you might want to advise parents that PCT or person-centered therapy is not usually effective. And also psychodynamic or insight-oriented therapy are not effective for people on the spectrum. And they make a note that even though they have mentioned quite a bit that there are medications that can treat mood disorders, they are not necessarily advocating medication for everyone. They say sometimes it works, sometimes there's no benefit, and sometimes there are too many side effects. And autism itself is not something that needs to be treated with medicine. Depression and anxiety that occur alongside autism might be helped with medication. So they're not saying if you're autistic, you need to be on medicine. If you suffer from depression or anxiety or your child suffers from depression or anxiety, you might want to give it a try. And then if medication is started, parents need to keep track and closely monitor changes in mood and behavior and report those to the doctor. They mentioned that probiotics might be something that would be helpful. There are many serotonin receptors in our gut and many problems can be improved, not just by the brain, but in the stomach. And I think that people are doing a lot of research on that type of thing right now. So we'll probably know more in coming years. (laughs) But basically to wrap up the chapter, they just say depression, anxiety do not have to be a disabling adjunct to autism. You acknowledge them, you treat them, and you use all the tools you have available. But you might have to give a loving push before a teen agrees to get help with depression or anxiety. And in the end, it's going to be really worth it. So they end with just Martha listing all of the things that she's used to tackle her depression and anxiety. She says that she has used therapy. She uses Lexapro. She's on Tegretol for her sensory issues. She works hard to maintain a good diet, exercises. We know she moves the heavy furniture around. And she uses relaxation routines to help her with her depression and anxiety. And she says sometimes she doesn't want to do some of them, but she knows that if she doesn't keep doing all of these things, that her mood will really suffer. So, you know, sometimes your kid might need you to show them that they need these tools. And then once they have them in place, they'll be able to see the benefits if you're pointing them out too. And then you can create a real routine that makes sure that they don't fall into episodes of really bad depression or anxiety. Yeah. All right. So that is it for chapter five of The Loving Push. I hope you found the information in this episode helpful. Make sure that you head to our Patreon if you're interested in downloading any of the handouts. So we'll see you next time when we'll be discussing The Loving Push, chapter six. Bye, Adrian. Bye, Laura. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash the SLP book club to join the discussion after each episode. Want even more of the SLP book club? We've made all the resources for this book, including chapter summaries and visuals available for free on our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash the SLP book club to download these great materials. To learn more about the SLP book club, go to the SLP You can contact us by emailing hello at the SLP 
Follow us on Instagram at SLP underscore book club. Find us on TikTok at the SLP book club. 